You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Aaron Lammer here with part two of our South by Southwest extravaganza. In part one, I hope you enjoyed Pam Koloff and Mimi Schwartz. Thanks to them. Uh, Here in part two, I talked to Lawrence Wright. The sound quality is not great, but uh, I think it's worth it because it was a great interview. Um, Thanks to our sponsors, Pill Pack and Tiny Letter. Here I am with Lawrence Wright. So when I was preparing to talk to you, uh, I looked at your biography, and it picks up um, around when you start writing for Texas Monthly and Rolling Stone, but I don't really know very much about what brought you to writing. What was your, what was your first paid gig? The uh, very first paid gig was for a, a, a magazine called The Progressive uh, in Wisconsin, uh, it was an old political magazine, and I, I was trying to freelance, and we were living in North Carolina. My wife, Roberta, was working at Duke and um, in the library, and um, I, I did a little story about a, a, a firebombing of a horse stable. Uh, three black activists had burned down a stable, and... Um, uh, it was a very controversial story at the time, and you know, so it was my very first story, and it led eventually to my getting a job at the Race Relations Reporter in Nashville, which is where my career really began. What were your ambitions at that point for your own reporting? I mean, w- what kind of stuff did you want to, to build towards? Well, when I started out as uh, a notional writer, you know, I thought I was going to be a poet in uh, the village. (laughs) Of course, I had no idea of what it cost to live in Greenwich Village and uh, uh, or what a poet might make or that I could write poetry, which turned out not to be the case. Uh, And uh, my ambition, though, was to be a writer. And I thought I'd be a novelist or a poet or something like that. And journalism was just a way uh, to to bridge uh, the financial obligations I kept incurring like children and um, the uh, so that was but it turned out to be far more significant part of my life than I expected it to be what kinds of things did you discover during those those first stories that you were reporting that 
drew you into reporting as a profession? Well, first of all, it was a lot harder than I thought. Uh, you know, there, I was, you know, Pam earlier mentioned, you know, the uh, Tom Wolfe, and, and so I, I was very much under the influence of the new journalists. And uh, it was a time when journalism began to seem exciting, but it had to be literary. You couldn't just go out and report the facts. And my career at, at the race relations reporter was reporting the facts. You know, I was, and I had wider ambitions than that, but I didn't know, there was nobody to teach that. And um, so I, when I first started freelancing, um, I was, you know, just in agony about how to start a story. You know, if you, I felt if you could find the right entry point, then, you know, you would be able to wind your way through it in a more literary way, but you could not start, you know, the way I typically start all my stories now. At the New Yorker, you're, you're more or less required to, you know, on April 13th, you know, so-and-so started, you know, you have everything in the first uh, couple of sentences. I wanted, uh, you know, to make my stories a lot more literary. And I, I was uh, blocked because of my own ambition. I would spend a week on the couch trying to figure out how to get started on a story. And, um, but it, eventually I began to find a way to get into stories. And then the, the main problem was, it seemed like it's still the problem, how to arrange the information in a stylish way that will carry the readers through the story. And um, I finally understood that the only way to do that for me is through characters and scenes. You know, those are, I think, are the, the building blocks of any great story, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. If you have wonderful characters that the reader cares about, they will carry you into a world that might be really difficult to understand, but if you care about that person, all the information that, is the, that creates the world that character lives in becomes more meaningful. And uh, so you can feed information to the reader in a, in, in a way they, that makes them eager to, to take it in. And then if you have great scenes, um, that's where you can spread the canvas out and, uh, and paint the picture and draw the reader in. If you have those two things, you know, and that was what I was teaching myself as a young journalist, is not consciously at the time, but you know, these are the things that I need in order to make a great story. The information is important, but essentially what the reader cares about, and the, reader, the reason the reader is in the story in the first place and will stay in it, is because they have a human connection to the people that are involved in the story. I think that's an interesting way to, to break up your work into character and scene. Um, in terms of character, the, the last two books you've written, um, Going Clear, which is about Scientology, and Looming Tower, which is about Al-Qaeda, are, are dominated by these larger-than-life characters, uh, Osama bin Laden and L. Ron Hubbard. Uh, and I'm interested in, when you approached these really massive world-influencing organizations that both have this per, uh, cult of personality around sort of a singular founder, how did you balance those, the, the character, the sort of larger-than-life character against the overall larger story 
that involves, you know, international relations and massive amounts of FBI agents, or in the case of Scientology, uh, uh, tax agents? Well, just to take the example of the looming tower, um, on 9-11, uh, I was here. I was uh, had a, a Spanish breakfast uh, on Tuesdays, and uh, I got in the car, and NPR was on, and the you know first plane had hit. And you know, by the time I got home, I knew that the world had changed. And how do I? And I feel that I need to address that somehow. And it became, as the story opened up a little bit, it became more personal to me, in part because we had lived in Cairo for two years when when we were young teachers at the American University. And um, so I spoke Arabic. I I lived in a Muslim country. I, I knew something about that part of the world. And, you know, I had also written this movie called The Siege, uh, which was about... Uh, you know, what would happen in our country if terrorism arrived on our shores. And it came out in 1998, and it creepily prefigured uh, events of 9-11. So those two things were making me, motivating me to, to write about 9-11. But how do you take such a vast tragedy and make it human and understandable? And... For me, the only way to do that is to find certain key figures. I call them donkeys. Uh, it sounds like a derogatory term, but a, a donkey is a very useful beast of burden, and it can carry a lot of information on its back, and also it'll take the reader into a world that he may not understand or may not have thought he cared about until you have this donkey. And so I was in Austin. You remember the planes were all grounded for a couple of weeks, and I couldn't get up to New York. And you know, then, then what was I going to do? So I started going through the obituaries that were streaming online at that point. And after about a week, uh, this one obit came on the Washington Post online site for John O'Neill. And O'Neill had been the head of counterterrorism in the New York office of the FBI, uh, which really had the mandate to get bin Laden. He was, you know, he was the man who was supposed to get bin Laden. And um, he was fired from the uh, FBI because he had taken classified information out of the bureau. And then he had gone to work at the World Trade Center as the head of security. So instead of getting bin Laden, bin Laden got him. And I thought, well, I don't know if he's a hero or a villain, but he's a donkey. You know, he can take the reader into the world of counterterrorism, which failed us. And he can, I don't know who he is yet, but I know he's a character in this book. And so as soon as I could get to New York, I went up and started writing about John O'Neill. And then, you know, I knew that bin Laden was going to be a, a donkey for me, uh, and uh, but I didn't know who else. But you know, I, I couldn't get into Saudi Arabia uh, for about a year and a half, and um, so I went to Egypt, where we used to live. And I realized that Ayman El Zawahiri, the current leader of of Al Qaeda, was really the brains of the organization. 
And so he became uh, a central character and was able for me to develop the history. You know, by telling about his life, I could talk about the rise of Islamism and where it came from. And, um, and then when I got into Saudi Arabia, uh, I realized that all my Arabs were villains. <laughs> and uh, I met Prince Turkey al-Faisal, who was at one point the head of Saudi intelligence and had gone to school at Georgetown with Bill Clinton and had worked with Osama bin Laden to build uh, this uh, network in, in Afghanistan to fight the Soviets. And I thought, he's perfect, because he, he can lead me into the whole royal family and the, you know, the world of, uh, of Saudi intelligence. Once I had those four characters in mind, their interweaving biographies told the story of 9-11. In the context of um, L. Ron Hubbard, who is, um, I, I, the word I was going to use is fraud, but I, I don't think that's like totally accurate, but a person who constructed an elaborate narrative about himself, this man was a naval hero, um, the first thing you, you do in, in, in treating him is debunk some of his claims about himself, but after the sort of facts have been out there, how do you go about constructing the real, how, how do you build the counter-narrative of who L. Ron Hubbard really was? How do you, how do you cut through first the, the narrative that he's put forth himself, and how do you build back up what this person really stood for and what kind of a person they really were? What interested me about Hubbard, uh, I, I didn't want to do an expose because why bother? It's the most stigmatized religion in the world, you know, so <laughs> expose, Scientology, wow. Uh, but I wanted to understand it. Yeah. And that was what really, you know, why would all these glamorous celebrities, you know, intelligent, skeptical, and, you know, appealing personalities surrender their, uh, uh, their public image? and lend themselves uh, to uh, a church that has so many black marks against it. Why would they do that? What do they get out of it? And so it, it, that naturally led to um, Hubbard. What was interesting to me about him is that there were these two narratives, the one that he told and the one the record tells. They're parallel-ish, but uh, they're not the same. But, you know, this was a man who lived a really interesting life, but he, he tried to make it more interesting than it needed to be. And uh, I was intrigued by the gap between his, his narrative and the real life that he actually lived. And so it was helpful to me, instead of just being, you know, just exposing it, is exploring the difference between what he actually had done in life, and then how he imagined it for as, as a part of his ongoing narrative. He was trying to write his own biography. The other person that was really important in that was Paul Haggis, because uh, he was a two-time Academy Award-winning writer and director who had dropped out of Scientology after 34 years, and he was my initial donkey. Uh, he agreed to, uh, you know, he hadn't ever talked about being in Scientology. And uh, I, I didn't know how to get in touch with him. I got in touch with his business manager, and uh, I said, 
Hi, this is Lawrence Wright with The New Yorker. I'm interested in doing a, a profile of uh, uh, Paul Haggis uh, apropos of his decision to drop out of the Church of Scientology. Are you kidding? We would never do that. Get the fuck off my phone. Click. <laughs> the entire conversation. And uh, so then uh, I got Paul's personal email the next day somehow, and I sent him a a note saying, I, I spoke to your business manager, and he, and he said this wasn't the best time. <laughs> but if there's ever a time you'd be interested in telling your personal, spiritual, and intellectual journey, I'd be pleased to tell it. And he said, he responded right away, very flattered, let's have lunch on Tuesday. So I went up on uh, to New York, we had lunch, and and uh, we watched him cut his movie that he was working on, and we went out for him to smoke a cigarette on the sidewalk. And I said, of course, this is occasioned by your decision to drop out of the church. And his eyes got a little wide, but he forged ahead. And it was months later, after many other interviews, he said it had never occurred to him that um, it was going to be about Scientology. He was just so flattered the New Yorker was going to do a profile. He didn't want to believe it. So how many donkeys do you have at a given time? I mean, like, if I were to look in your iPhone, is there, like, friends and families and donkeys? <laughs> I, actually, to further that question, so in the context of, of going clear, um, you have these fantastically detailed scenes on, on the boat that L. Ron Hubbard w was sailing with for a period of years that have really rich cinematic uh, quality to them. And going from character to scene, how, how do you construct scenes that happened 30 or 40 years ago? Um, and I know that, that, that the, the Scientology stuff was like fact-checked at, at a record level. So I know that there's something behind them. When you want to reconstruct a scene, say like L. Ron Hubbard parking his boat in a Greek port in the 60s, where do you start building that scene? Well, there are a lot of people still alive that were on that boat. And the um, tricky thing, this, this was a, a problem I'd never encountered as a reporter before. Uh, so many people, you know, I, I, after I got started on the story, I, I was able, the church allowed me to speak to a few people, and then they cut me off. And um, it was fascinating because after that no active Scientologist would talk to me it was like a flock of birds just you know group mind they all went off and um, but a lot of former Scientologists were still willing to but they many of them had signed non-disclosure agreements and um, if I remember the terms of the uh, of the agreement it was like every word that if, if they talk to me, every word that they, uh, you, they, they were, that was quoted would be 20 cents times the number of subscribers. So if you have a million subscribers and you've, you know, you've been quoted you know, 300 words, we're talking about millions of dollars that they would, you know, just to, because they'd talk to me. And great, great in today's uh, journalism climate. <laughs> right, exactly. So uh, uh, I had to, I, I can't go into that too deeply, but I had to finesse that. And, um, uh, but I, when I get to a scene like the Apollo, the ship that 
that uh, Hubbard sailed in the Scientology Navy he created. I, I try to find all the people in, that I can that were actually on the ship, and I interview them. Uh, I, I research a scene just as much as I would the biography of a character, because I know that's going to be important. I know that when, for instance, he's, he's taking this little expedition into his past lives, he, he believed that, or he said that he was a race car driver in the Markabian civilization, you know, two million years ago, or, something, you know, or he was a Carthaginian sailor. And uh, he used to bury pots of gold around the Mediterranean. And let's go out and find it. And so he took a little expedition of, of some of his uh, top Sea Org members, as they call them, and they went all around these spots in Cyprus and in the lower part of Italy and so on, looking for the gold that uh, the Carthaginian sailor incarnation uh, had buried. And they never found it. But they had a great time. It was, you know, it was like, I t in my thinking, you know, I said, well, didn't you ever question where these stories came from? And, and um, one person said, yes, I did ask him, but he said, let's not get into that. Uh, so they didn't, it was like children playing imaginary games in, in my perception of it. They didn't want to think too deeply about it because it was, it was a, an adventure. I wasn't uh, surprised when, although actually I was slightly surprised, but when you said that you had had ambitions as a poet, because in your work I think there's a, a number of um, places where a poetic and artistic touch that's not always there in journalism plays a role. I mean, just the, the title of Looming Tower, uh, I think the actual quote was, uh, wherever you are, death will find you, even in the Looming Tower, which is... Something Bin Laden said at a wedding party? No, it's in the Quran. Oh, okay. I thought, for some reason, I thought it was quoted of him saying at a wedding. I was the, that is the worst wedding toast <laughs> possible. Uh, but you've also done stage plays that are based on your experience in reporting this, and it seems like beyond the facts, there is an artistic and poetic level that you try to layer on top of your work. And what role does that play? Why... Why do a, a play in addition to a book? Why, why expand your work beyond sort of finding facts? You know, I, I do write in a lot of different media or forums, but I feel like it's all one thing. It's all storytelling. And, uh, you know, the, the basic structure of using characters and scenes whether you're writing a nonfiction story or you're writing a movie or you're creating a play, they all need those things. And I still use the same techniques of, you know, research. Um, you know, I uh, just did a, a, written a play about Camp David, the Carter, Begin, Sadat Summit, and I researched it just as thoroughly as I would a book or a New Yorker story. I went to Israel and Egypt and I went down and talked to the Carters and planes and uh, and then I wrote a book about it. So, you know, you can, you can use the same information in different media, but they're, they draw different things from you as a writer. And I like having the experience of, uh, you know, working with actors, for instance, is, is a lot of fun for me. And, um, and then being on stage myself, I certainly don't 
present myself as an actor, you know, but I, I um, in some ways, I think of it as being like the original reporter. And uh, when I'm standing out on the stage and you can see, you know, it's dark out there and you see the little glints of glasses, frames, and so on. And think about the original reporter, you know, a group of cavemen <laughs> sitting around and saying, what's over the hill? I don't know. And somebody says, I'll go find out. So he goes over the hill and he comes back and there's a big fire and you can just barely see everybody and you say what's over the hill. Well, that's kind of what I was doing in my one-man shows and it's not much different from what every reporter does. In thinking about where you go from here um, beyond this, this Camp David play, it strikes me that a lot of the people that you've written about over the last decade are people who are... Um, subject to massive misinformation or, or counter-information. I mean, I, I thought one of the most striking things about the Scientology book was these people haven't gone on the internet and researched Scientology. Like, people don't Google Scientology who are in Scientology. In terms of Al-Qaeda, there's a huge apparatus for spreading uh, the message uh, of, uh, of uh, extremism. Where do you see, what kind of groups or people do you want to cover going forward? What, what, what interests you out there now? Well, I've, I've just sold a series to HBO set in the world of Texas politics. Um, it's a tragedy. Um, <laughs> but it's, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I like, I made a resolution um, Twenty or thirty years ago, I don't remember what it was. That I would, I would only do things that were really important or really fun, because life has many offerings, and you have to make a decision about how you choose between one thing and another. And uh, if it's important, uh, like 9/11 came along, and I thought I have to do this, you know, I just have to do it. And uh, but I still like to have fun, and. Um, uh, when, when you're in a, a moment that uh, offers you something really fun to do, uh, then I tend to seize it. So I like, I like writing humor, and uh, Texas politics, uh, unfortunately, gives you ample opportunity uh, to find funny things to say. And uh, it's going to be said in the Texas House of Representatives, and... Um, you know, life will offer me many uh, things to draw from. Do you ever think about um, going full circle? I mean, you wrote some really uh, incredible profiles in the 70s. Uh, one that really stuck with me was your profile of Richard Browdigan, who was a poet, who became a novelist, who had this sort of massive rise and, and then de decline. Are you ever tempted to, to sort of go smaller again and, and get just on a single person or a, a single, uh, a tinier tragedy? I, I'm old enough now to just, that I want to just do the things that are meaningful to me. And um, because I don't know how much more productive life I have and I want to make the most out of it. I, I'm grateful for all of the experience I've had because I've learned a craft and uh, I can apply that craft in many different ways. And I might go back and find something that was um, smaller, 
but uh, in some ways, every story has its small and, and big aspects to it. When I find a person that I want to write about, it's usually because of the world they live in. I, I, you know, something about you know, the experience they have in this universe that I don't understand, if I can find a person that can take me into that, uh, then it's, you crawl in through a door and you get, in, you get into this much larger room. The person himself, I hope to keep at human scale. When you ask someone to walk into their universe, when, when you identify a universe that walk, you want to walk into, how do you represent your intentions? Why, why should someone let you into their universe, possibly at their own peril? Well, it's, first of all, it's always a mystery to me why anybody talks to reporters. Um, the, um, it is a, you know, it's a dangerous thing, and I've had people write about me before, and it's, it's, it's an odd experience. You, you trust someone you don't know to represent you to the whole world. And um, so uh, the answer to my question, I suppose, is that what I've learned is almost everybody believes that if they could just find a reasonable person to talk to, and this goes even for members of Al-Qaeda, you know, I mean, if they could just talk to somebody who could understand, they would see that, you know, what I'm doing is the right thing to do. And you would do it, too, if you were in my spot. And I try to be the reasonable, understanding person. Not, I'm not trying to be a hypocrite, but I try to remove judgment so that I can be available to hear what they're actually saying. And uh, if you, you know, if you, if you, sometimes you, you may, you know, like when I'm talking to Al-Qaeda personalities, it's, uh, it's dis disconcerting to like them. You know, that's, it's, 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 uns it's unsettling because I, I, I you know, I, I had thought about if I had the chance to interview Osama bin Laden, should I kill him? I mean, it's, it's a fair question, you know. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, suppose we're having dinner, should I stab him with the bread knife? You know, this is a, you know, and uh, do I have a moral obligation to kill him? Or do I have a moral obligation as a reporter to simply hear him? And, uh, and I'm not, dis I, 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 fortunately somebody took quite care of that uh, problem for me, that dilemma. But um, it, you know, it's, it, it's sometimes difficult to take away the judgments that you naturally have when you enter a place. And then when you do that, when you strip yourself and you're kind of morally naked, um, it's sometimes surprising how infectious the relationship can become. Has your neutrality in those situations been tested? I mean, have you, have you been provoked to a reaction at times? I remember in, in the documentary, the um, show you did for HBO, you, you brought up the question of, you know, people who, yes, it's, it's great to behead aid workers, was an example. Like, how do you keep yourself, both as a human being and a reporter, how, how do you separate those things in those situations? 
Well, I'm not always that good at it. I, it, it, it what you're talking about, right after 9-11 when I went to Egypt, and it's a country that I knew very well and cared about very deeply. Um, and, uh, and there were practically no Americans there, and there were a lot of agitated Egyptians, and they were just waiting to take out it on, on you know, the first American they saw. You know, they're so angry. And, uh, and I was angry, too. I was really pissed off and, uh, and grieving. And I would, you know, be talking to the people in, you know, the Muslim Brothers or something like that, and, you know, they'd be wagging their finger under my nose, and I thought, next time that happens, I'm going to snap that finger right off. You know, I just was so, and I got in this terrible, the last day I was there, was, I was there the first time I went back to Egypt after 9-11, I was there for three months, and the last day I was talking to this Muslim brother spokesman, uh, Issam Alarian, who had just gotten out of prison. He's now back. But um, he'd gotten out of prison that day, and I was leaving the next day, so I had nothing to lose. And he was all wrought up and had a theory about America. And I was so angry at him. And uh, it's, it was actually a productive interview because we were yelling at each other in our stocking feet. Oh, you have to take off your shoes. So we're sitting, sitting in our socks and yelling at each other. And, uh, but we actually kind of got down to a point where uh, I thought we, I got some honest reaction from him. And so what I'm, I guess I'm saying is it's, it's not always am I able to achieve that kind of neutrality that I'm talking about? And sometimes it's productive not to be in that place. So speaking of uh, volatile situations, uh, this HBO show you're working on, will this be fiction or nonfiction? And how closely are you tying this to real Texas politics? It's going to be fiction, but it's going to look like real life. Uh, You'll, you'll find uh, personalities, echoes of personalities that, um, well, if we're talking about something, I'm writing the, the outline for the pilot, so this may, this may be the, the only manifestation <laughs> right, right here. So, you know, so this is what it's like. You know, this, you know, uh, you'll get an exclusive uh, taste to it. But, uh, but I, I've, I had written a play about Texas politics called Sonny's Last Shot that we had two productions here in Austin. And I always, uh, I was very fond of that. And I loved writing the characters. And the, you know, Texas politics is a genre. You know, there's not any other states that have political genres, but, you know, like murder mysteries are a genre, and romances are a genre, and Texas politics. You know, <laughs> it's just one of those things. And um, without uh, Molly Ivins on the scene any longer, there's a vacancy. And, and, and think about that huge appetite of the whole country uh, living in terror of what's going to come out of Texas now. Um, and I think that this is a great opportunity to, to educate people, and especially, you know, when you have so much prejudice against Texas, there's plenty to draw upon in terms of the, the responses that you expect for such a show. Well, I could ask you questions for another several hours here, but uh, it seems like there is beer and barbecue. Um, will you come back on sometime for an even longer conversation? I'd be happy to. Thank you. Any place, uh, any place you want to do it, um, we're game.
Well, probably not any place. Uh, Islamabad is out in, in Florida, probably. But other than that, uh, I'd love to have you back on and talk more about this. Thank you very much to Lawrence Wright. Thank you to all our guests and to the Texas Monthly, uh, to Azmi, Atavist. Uh, thanks, everyone, for coming. Thanks for listening to Long Form. I'm Max Linsky. That was Aaron Lammer with Larry Wright. Earlier, Evan Ratliff interviewed Mimi Swartz. Uh, thanks to both of them. Thanks to Pam Koloff. Thanks to Jake Silverstein of Texas Monthly for setting the whole thing up. Uh, it was a blast. I am very full. I never need to eat again. Thanks to our sponsors, Pill Pack and Tiny Letter. Uh, thanks very much to our new editor, Jenna Weiss-Berman, who's already saved our lives like seven times. Uh, and thanks to our intern, Sarah Button. We'll be back next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.